Good evening. My name is Moira Shori, and I'm the Executive Director of Zirkolo Public Square. Welcome to our discussion on how can we make farm work healthier, presented in partnership with the California Wellness Foundation. And thank you all for joining us. At Zocalo, our mission is to connect people to ideas and to each other. Everything we do is free and everyone is welcome. In a few days, we will be announcing the winner of our 10th annual Zocalo Book Prize. Our prize is for the best nonfiction book published in the US that enhances our understanding of community and the forces that strengthen or undermine human connectedness and social cohesion. This is a very special occasion, so please visit our website for more information, zocalopublicsquare.org. Back to today's discussion on how can we make farm work healthier. You can send your questions to our moderator, Alice Daniel, through the live chat room that you see on your screen. Alice is the news director of Fresno's KVPR, Valley Public Radio, the NPR station for Central California. Over to you, Alice. And welcome to tonight's Zocalo Public Square discussion, How Can We Make Farm Work Healthier? I'm Alice Daniel, and I'm the news director at Valley Public Radio in Fresno. We were already slated to talk about making farm work healthier long before this pandemic broke out, but the topic feels even more timely in light of it. Farm workers and small farmers are considered essential right now, but most people don't really know what they do or even the risk they take to bring food to our tables. And so I'm excited to introduce our panelists tonight because they'll help us understand better what's at stake for everyone. Tanya Pacheco-Werner is a medical sociologist and the co-assistant director for the Central Valley Health Policy Institute. Her recent research uses historical census environmental and health surveillance data to show how policy has shaped health outcomes in Fresno. Chia Tao is a public health researcher and doctoral candidate at the University of California, Merced. She studies the links between pesticides and health, focusing on mom farmers in the Central Valley. Nikiko Masamoto is an organic farmer, memory keeper, and artist at Masamoto Family Farm on land touched by her great-grandparents just outside of Fresno. With her father, Moss, she has co-authored two books, Changing Season, and their cookbook, the, the Perfect Peach. And Ray Leon is the mayor of Huron, California, a city made up mostly of farm workers and their families. He's also the founder of the San Joaquin Valley Latino Environmental Advancement and Policy Project, and an advocate for environmental, trans environmental and transportation justice, air quality, green jobs, and community development. Before we get into our discussion, I want to let you know that we'll have time for a few questions later. So as you're watching, please submit your questions in the live chat window. Let's start with you, Ray. As a mayor who works with many residents who are farm workers or live with farm workers, why don't you paint a broad picture for us of what life is like for a farm worker and the biggest challenges they face in terms of access to resources, including housing and health care? Sure. Uh, and before I mention that, let me just say that I'm a, a son of farm workers. My father, a bracero farm worker uh, from 1957, uh, who arrived as an orphan, undocumented 14-year-old uh, to Huron in 51. 
And uh, growing up, my father made sure that I understood our identity uh, as having those farm worker roots. Um, but uh, but uh, on a daily basis, uh, farm workers uh, uh, come back from the fields and uh, you can tell that you know, it's, it's, it's some rough work. It's rough work. And uh, by the time a farm worker reaches about 70 years old and they're still working in the fields, you can tell that the bodies you know, farm workers, uh, ultimately, you know, they end up broken. And that's uh, something extremely sad due to the fact that, uh, you know, what do you do, especially if you're undocumented, you know, and 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 your your body uh, is broken and you can't do anything else. And then later on, you just uh, have to uh, depend on Social Security, which is definitely not enough to survive. You know, so there's a lot of, uh, that's a systemic issue. And, and it goes back to the lack of respect uh, for the dignity of farm workers and and their contribution to society, to our state and to the country, you know. And um, and, and uh, if you're in Huron, then uh, you'd see early in the morning, five o'clock, buses coming in, a lot of traffic, uh, a lot of movement, uh, people uh, uh, crowding up at different uh, uh, businesses to to get their their whatever they need for their drink, or maybe they're getting their lunch at the store that day. Uh, then they and 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 right now it's kind of difficult and. And it's uh, upon the responsibility of not just the individual, but also the businesses to try to maintain the, the, uh, the metrics of social distancing uh, visible for the community and, and reminding, them, uh, reminding them of such. Uh, one of the concerns today right now in regards to our reality is the fact that, uh, you know, I'm not seeing farm workers leaving or coming back with masks. You know, I don't think that PPE is uh, being provided to the, the thousands of farm workers that are going out to the fields every day to uh, harvest the, the, the food that America dearly requires, you know. Uh, and we know, we've always known that farm workers are essential because they are, have been our family, they have been our parents, uh, they've been us. Uh, and, and so now this whole chatter about, you know, essential jobs uh, and farm workers being essential and so forth, it's like, it's kind of like telling us after the fact, uh, but throughout never having given farm workers uh, the, the justice, right? And farm workers being the critical lifeblood of, of our region and of our county, which uh, once again has achieved to be, uh, to have the highest ag revenue in the country. And so uh, hopefully uh, this is something that, that changes, but you know, I'll leave my comments there for now. Well, Nikiko, let's, let's turn to you. Um, how are we missing the perspectives of farm workers in policymaking and why don't they have more agency? Yeah, it's a really good question. So from my perspective as a fourth generation um, farmer and farm worker, because um, I work the land too, um, one of the big differences between my role as a farmer and a lot of the farm workers that are our neighbors, our colleagues, our friends um, is, as Ray mentioned, it's structural. Um, we have in this country constructed a system, a food system that depends on labor um, of a lot of people who are not empowered agents of our political system. And part of that has to do with the history of our country um, relying on immigrant labor for food and not coupling with that essential important value um, the rights that, that everyone deserves who lives and contributes to our country, um, especially feeding us in, in our political process. So, so for me, I, I hear a lot of, of um, 
um, similarity in, in perspective of what um, Mayor Leon just articulated that some of these issues have to do with structures um, um, and, and the way that we've um, constructed structures to leave farm workers out of, of important conversations about the very conditions they live and work in. And what might be an example of a structure that you're referring to? So I'll take I'll take an example from um, the the our, our current crisis and the um, the federal stimulus package that was passed in an attempt to really um, help Americans. So many of our lives have been disrupted by um, um, the the need to respond to public health calls um, for the COVID nineteen um, crisis, of course. And yet, uh, we know it's it's not a secret. A large percentage of our farm worker base um, are undocumented immigrants who, because of the way the law was structured, are now not going to get the twelve hundred dollar stimulus checks that every other American is getting. And that's an example of the way in which we make laws, and we make laws that that marge continue to marginalize farm workers. And Tanya. Uh, most farm workers don't receive sick pay if they fall ill and they lack uh, health insurance. Tell us about some policies that can keep farm workers safe right now. Um, I would go back to some of what Ray was talking about, but really when I do focus groups and talk about um, what is the best thing that would help people economically um, advance and those that are farm workers say over and over again, let's follow the laws that are already in the books. Mm -hmm. And so there is this assumption that because there are laws out there that they are being followed by all farmers and contractors. Um, and in essence, there are many violations happening today as, um, as Ray alluded to in terms of the protective equipment not being available um, because there is simply, um, you know, we're working with a bare bones agency that surveils them. And so, um, which is Cal OSHA, right? And, and so we don't get the implementation of the current laws that are really needed to protect farm workers that are already in the books. But policies moving forward, um, one of the things that needs to be included is the way that farm workers are seen as the exemption to so many policies regarding economic relief, regarding um, anything related to initiatives around um, health and labor, often they are seen as their own category. And that really becomes, when we look at them as a different category, what they really become is secondary citizens within our labor force that further perpetuates the health disparities they're already gonna go through because of their income, because of their immigration status, because of their language capabilities. And so really making sure that they are integrated into absolutely every policy that we think about when we're advancing our populace, are we thinking about them? And if we're providing an exemption to the rule, we really need to change that paradigm that was an old paradigm. And we really need to see how they are essential to our food chain, to our which food is tied to security, right? They're tied to our national security and they should be seen in that manner. And are there any initiatives right now that would benefit farm workers? I think one of the, one of the key things to think about when we think about this population is that we think about them within the context of 
many of them being undocumented. And so finding ways for them to also get relief during this time is going to be key um, because when we think about all of the, the things that are going to have ripple effects, you know, my colleagues working on evictions, on um, foreclosure, forbearance, right? All of those things are augmented for farm workers. And if we can keep those neighborhoods and those communities stable, that will help our food supply, that will help our national security, that will help all of us as a nation. But we need to find ways to integrate them today into policies that, that are related to the relief um, due to the COVID-19. But how do you do that? I think that we make sure that lawmakers are aware and know that they, these loopholes that have been kind of set as automatic exemptions, you know, where farm workers are seen as automatically exempt, um, that they, they get closed, right? So that, that would be one thing. And the next thing is really fighting um, things like lowering the, um, the wages for the guest workers that are here under the guest worker visa program, right? That should not be happening. And um, people at all levels of power, whether farmers, business owners, everybody should be advocating for that not to happen. So let's, uh, we'll, we'll revisit that in a moment, but uh, Chia, let's talk to you a little bit. Um, you're a researcher at UC Merced. Give us some insight into the Hmong community in the Valley, their history here, and the kinds of farm work they do and the obstacles they face. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, the Hmong community here in Fresno is really unique in terms that uh, most of the farmers here are first generations uh, and they are, our history is really rooted back to uh, in, to China, but the Hmong here in the United States are a group of um, people who are displaced from their home countries of Laos to become political refugee in Thailand and then resettle to other part of the country. Uh, pr- predominantly, most of these individuals uh, settle here in the United States. Um, and uh, so coming to the US, they um, one of the skills that the community have is farming. Uh, and so they really brought a unique farming skill here to the Central Valley. And they, not only the farming skill, but the type of crops that they are accustomed to in their home country. And so coming here, they're really growing and and take advantage of the the opportunity that was given to them by having a shelter, a place where they could really foster the skill that they have uh, back home. And you also have an interesting history. Tell us about that and how it led you to do research on pesticide use, use and health. Yeah, you know, I also grew up in a, a, a farmer family. My parents, when we first settled here from a refugee camp in Thailand uh, to Fresno, uh, my my the first job that my mom uh, take is uh, as a farm worker uh, and helping an auntie at the farm. Uh, and through that, she learned where the resources uh, to rent a, a plot. And and so her first real real income that she's making um, is uh, farming. And so she and so I grew up helping her at the farm. And I really saw a lot of disparities, but more than that, the struggle and the challenge that my my family face. 
Um, because not only that language is a barrier for many of our community uh, who are um, most of the Hmong farmers here in the Central Valley tend to be much older. And when they settle here, uh, many of them don't have the language capacity to really, um, to, to really uh, understand the laws and the regulations and the policy, but they're really practical that they, they have a skill set that they could easily use, right? And so uh, I really saw my, my parents struggle firsthand trying to navigate the systems of how, where do I, where could I rent a plot? What are the resources I need? Uh, and so I really grew up in, in a farming um, a family and, and so I have, so I carried that along with me as I uh, progressed through my uh, journeys and education. And uh, now as a researcher, really looking back at my community, uh, where are we uh, in terms of health? And there's not a lot of, a lot of research I look into my communities. And, and um, I found that there's a lack of voice in the community because there's no research looking into the community. So we don't know their needs. We don't know some of the challenge and struggle that they have. Um, and so that's a little bit of that. And, and what are some of the challenges and struggles um, aside from dealing with pesticide use uh, that you've, you've found? I think language is one of the Uh, language, I think, I can't hear you. So we might have lost Tia for a moment. So let's um, let's move on. Um, Ray, let's very low literate. Um, and so language is one of the biggest barriers because in a country where you don't speak the language, you know, where do you go purchase pesticide? Where, uh, how do you communicate in the process? Um, how do you, so I think language, it's one of the biggest barriers in, in our community. And Ray, let's return to you for a moment. Um, what are some of the things that you've done as a mayor to help create a more equitable system? I know you're very much an activist and you've done a lot of work in your town. Um, share some of those uh, programs with us. Well, as mayor, I mean, one of the, there's a lot of gaps in infrastructure. Uh, uh, changing out all the street lighting to LED and uh, taking care of the, the the areas where it was pitch dark was definitely something good for for safety and uh, comfort uh, for the residents. Uh, and you know, having uh, uh, participated in the advocacy for the bridge uh, on 269, which gets washed out every year and is a huge hazard and uh, also uh, creates a huge inconvenience and. And as a result, it also uh, adds to the creation of more pollution and the cost and people's uh, uh, traveling. But I uh, was able to get that, uh, the 18 million we needed through SB1. Uh, it was a long uh, uh, struggle, but it got done. And we have our, what we call the Heart of the Valley Bridge there today. Uh, so the, the, in terms of uh, uh, so on the ground, uh, one the, apart from being mayor, of course, you mentioned LEAP. Uh, we started uh, what we call the Green Raiteros. It's an electric vehicle ride sharing program that we use to transport farm worker families to their medical appointments. And uh, that's something that really alleviates the, uh, the economic burden and also the, uh, the, the worry, the stress, 
that comes with uh, the being uh, being isolated not only in terms of language but also in terms of geography uh, from uh, from the places where all the resources are at. In this case, uh, Fresno, uh, you know, folks uh, have to travel to uh, uh, cancer doctors in Bakersfield. We got Valley Children's in Madera. Uh, so when people are, are know that they have a ride, it's, it's really helpful in, in, in health, you know, and quality of life. Uh, back to the mayor's hat, you know, working to uh, uh, develop a, a, a heart within the community, which uh, I call a, a, a multimodal, culturally relevant pedestrian refuge, aka a plaza. And uh, it started a, a, a third of an acre right now. It's about three acres. And it'll be a, 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 a beautiful place where the community can can come together. Obviously, not right now. You know, once all this is over and once it's built, uh, can come together and and, uh, and 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 it'll be a space to to build community. You know, something similar to what we have culturally in the in the uh, landscape, uh, the the uh, of, of cities uh, down in Latin America, and 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 something uh, uh, that's that would be familiar to folks from uh, Europe as well, kind of like from the slow city model, but providing a place where people could come and and be together and get their local, regional, uh, or sub-regional uh, transportation uh, uh, mode to get to where they need to go to. So um, that's something we're looking forward to as well. But always advocating for farm workers, talking to uh, to uh, to legislators are really close to my legislators here. But I was on the panel in San Francisco when Governor Brown had the the Green Summit, uh, the Climate Summit, and uh, I was there with uh, former Senator Kevin De Leon, and I was talking about the very similar issues as we are today uh, about the farm workers and sharing my observation on how farm workers are they're broken, you know. Uh, by the time they 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 so-called retire, uh, they they their 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 life is sucked up. You know, our farm workers aren't in a position as as uh, in other communities, uh, like in the Anglo community, where somebody retires and they go volunteer with Sierra Club or something. You know, we don't our elders don't have that that uh, that that luxury. You know, and our elders are taken from our community. Uh, back in the old village, uh, uh, the elders would be the eyes on the street. You know, keeping uh, the youth in order. You know, uh, here uh, the elders are gone. You know, uh, they're 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 taken from us, and they can't participate in civic life, which is 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 a huge huge uh, uh, creates a huge uh, deficiency. You know, in the capacity to to really strengthen uh, uh, our participatory democracy and and civic life in general. And so, uh, you know, it's it's there's many there's many woes that we've been having to uh, to 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 experience in, in in the fact that farm workers have never been uh, justifiably uh, respected or, 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 or provided the dignity that uh, that can match the huge contribution that that has provided the the state and, and this country. And it's so important to note that all of those factors play into the health and well-being of people's lives. You know, just having access to transportation, a community square, green space, knowing that when you're, you've reached 65 or 70, you can actually retire and enjoy your life. And to not, not have those things is, is a huge, a huge issue. Um, yeah. Nikiko, Let's let's return to what we were talking about before um, and broaden it a bit. 
talk more a little about how our failing immigration system and xenophobic culture play into excluding many farm workers from the political process. Yeah, sure. So I, I just want to like pause for a second because this, this conversation is really powerful. And what I'm hearing from Tanya and Chia and Ray is that when we ask questions about the well-being of farm workers, we see a mirror of ourselves as a collective and our failings to address all of these intersecting issues, health and well-being, transportation, um, access via language, um, the ability to have some of the most fundamental parts of life, shelter, security, that your voice matters, right? So this is why this, this conversation is so important. So Alice, you, you were asking me about um, for more examples of the ways in which exclusion um, get formatted. And um, I mean, I can share from my own family history my a part of my family roots are from um, Japan. So my great grandparents immigrated and they were farm workers. And part of why they were farm workers was because in the 1900s, California passed a law, the, the alien land laws of 1913 that literally barred Asian immigrants from owning land was only because of come, where they came from. And this history we have not, I feel is a big wound. We have not reconciled this history. On the West Coast, we have exclusion of Asians from getting to call California and the United States a place of home by not being able to buy land, not being able to own land. And then you have um, continued xenophobia, um, World War II, comes and we need farm workers. And so the Bracero program starts and it fills a gap, but it doesn't give Braceros the dignity as Ray um, speaks about that they deserve. And then if you think about agricultural history on the East Coast, Southern agriculture was built on slavery. So these are the wounds that our country has yet to reckon with. And if there's one transformative possibility of this moment, where I know a lot of people are feeling um, food anxiety because for the first time, um, middle Americans are, are seeing shelves bare. If we can open this moment to really look at what kind of world do we wanna emerge from, I think that is the power uh, and food is right at the root. It is, we can't live without food. And thus, if we don't address how we treat the people who produce our food, we can't move forward. Well, I, I know that you've thought a lot about this in terms of, of COVID-19 being an opportunity of crisis, mm -hmm. um, in terms of restructuring the food system and valuing the people who grow our food. Um, how do you see that playing out? Uh, my, my, my biggest wish is that we do not try to go back to normal in the food system. Um, I'm hearing from small farmer friends that run CSA programs, community supported agriculture programs, that subscriptions are growing, which is great. People wanting to get closer to their source of food. Um, so that's one kind of response right now. And I hope that that continues. I, I, what I'm hoping is that this closeness that we 
are having to be at home right now in order to, to, to um, keep each other safe, that that continues to, to open questions about how we draw each other closer in our food system. So I think one possibility is shortening the gap between the fields and eaters. And if we can open those spaces of relationship, um, as, as Mayor Leon speaks about, you know, when you have neighbors who work in the fields, you can commit yourself to supporting their lives in a way that is much harder when you're distant. But what about people who live in suburbs and don't give a second thought to farm workers? How do we engage them? Anyone, Nikika? We let them go hungry for a little bit. <laughs> Realize, you know, how important farm workers are. Mm -hmm. um, if I may jump in here, I think that um, one of the things that we have to realize is how everything is interconnected. So when um, when Ray talked about the Green Retero program and air quality, right? So we all need to be worried about our air, whether you live out in the farms or in suburbia and really um, tying the technologies that are being used in the farms to the air that you get to breathe is so important and um, and really thinking about it as all of the interconnectivity of, of us together. And also that um, when we see, uh, you know, uh, to kind of rephrase some of what Ray said, right? When we see the disruption in the food chain, right? That is when we see that the stakes are really high and that that food requires workers and that those workers can only take so much in terms of the um, the exploitation or lack of access to, to resources that they need in order to be healthy and keep producing that food for us. And Tanya, that brings up another question that I think you can probably answer. What is the role of philanthropy and community benefits in moving forward a healthier uh, farm worker workforce? I think it's it's two tiered. Um, one, they can really help in the um, the capacity building that's needed to ensure the that farm workers who want to learn to be representatives for themselves and move the issues of them and their colleagues forward know how to do that. So how people can become and, and give pathways for people to become promotores, leaders, right, promoters um, of of different aspects of civic engagement or even health promotion. But there's also the other thing as, as um, philanthropy and community benefits invest in initiatives, we also have to think about pausing, does that new technology that you're going to be funding provide a safer environment for those workers or does it make for cleaner air? And if the technologies are going to be cutting out the human production side, what are, how are you helping companies and business groups or jurisdictions do the upskilling that's needed for that workforce that's going to be cut out um, to then take on other jobs or um, take on a different part of the sector as well? And so I think that it's both in direct interaction with the farm workers themselves and, and helping them really bring out their own civic engagement structure, but then also in the investments that they give to others 
around food production and technologies. Wonderful. Um, let's let's look at COVID nineteen again because it's such a important issue at this very moment. It's a crisis and. People over 60 are encouraged to shelter in place. Uh, so besides the obvious predic predicament older farm workers and small farmers face in terms of COVID-19, you know, what are some of the health issues unique to aging farm workers? And um, Chia, would you like to answer that? Yeah, you know, um, I think that for the small um, skilled mom farmers community, uh, they are not only the, the farm uh, owner of the land, but they're also the farm worker who, uh, so they still continue to uh, go to the farm and to, ha to maintain and take care of their, their farm uh, and to uh, uh, harvest their crop because most of the crop that the Asian farmer grow are, speci uh, are especially unique that it's um it's very time sensitive so they can't just let it rotten right they have to you know they have to maintain they have to still go and pick it up when it's the season and this is the uh, uh harvesting season for some of the crop that the farmer plant so they still continue to go to the farm to to uh, be out in the field and so that means they're still exposed themselves every day uh by being out in in the public picking up their crops and dropping off at the local Local grocery market, uh, and um, so I, I think that because of the 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 routes of how they function, they're still very uh, vulnerable in terms of exposure because they're always out in the field, and then they're they they still they then deliver to the the local grocery stores, and um, so I, I think that they're still um, they're very vulnerable in terms of exposure to the uh, COVID nineteen nineteen. Uh, more than that, many of them are, um, they don't have the uh, the resources, right? The, we talk about the proper uh, PPE and many of these farm uh, owners are, um, they're really limited in terms of their, the resources that they have. So uh, again, um, the, that proposed another challenge for the community. And it looks like we have about 10 minutes left before we start taking listener questions. Um, let's go back to that technology question again. Um, Nikiko, how can technology support farm workers and in what way should we be skeptical of its power to bring them into the political process? So there's a lot of different ways that um, technology is already deployed in agriculture and also um, can be deployed. And my, my always, um, my consistent thought and, and wonder is, are we being skeptical enough about who benefits from which form of technology? Um, there are absolutely like, important advancements in monitoring, um, monitoring ecosystems and environments on farms that add to um, creating a healthier environment for farm workers. And those types of technologies are absolutely vital. My concern about the way power overlaps in agriculture is if we if we propose that the answer to the question of this group is how do we make farm work healthier, if the answer is purely technological and robotic, to me, that raises a lot of 
questions about the consolidation of power in agriculture. And I don't think my, my, my goal as a small family farmer is not to create more distance between eaters and people and the land, but actually to bring people closer. So we can't just displace farm work as a means, I think what we need to do is really get into the story of food and farming. When, when you eat that peach, wouldn't it be amazing if you knew that the hands that worked to bring you that juicy golden um, um, symbol of summer, that all those people were cared for and, and were honored, that that connection between our lives was honored. Um, so, so that's my worry about technology as a, it's, it's not a panacea. It's not a, a golden ticket out of, of really the core question, which I hear from my colleagues here, which is how do we treat each other as Americans and as humans? Ray, what do you think about that and the role of technology? You know, uh, it's happening now. Uh, you know, 20 years ago, we didn't have as much farm as much uh, uh, almond orchards as we do today. You know, we have them throughout our region right now. Around Huron, there's there's a great deal. And uh, what that means is that there's less work uh, because there's less row crops. And so there's less need for people to, to pick because the almond orchards, it's a machine. You know, so it's, it's less, very much less labor intensive. So what does that mean for local communities like Huron and our local economy? It means uh, there's less people being able to uh, bring back, uh, harvest the check and bring it into the community to uh, 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 keep the, uh, the, the economy going for the, for the small stores, uh, little restaurants, mom, mom and pop shops mostly, right? At least here in Huron. And so, so it's a big hit, you know, and, and the more I think about it and the more I see that there's solar farms going up and some of the research that I've done, you know, uh, there's some solar farms going up in uh, areas where the prime, uh, the land is subprime or even prime. And uh, from the research that I've done uh, in the 20 year cycle, it, it, it basically it costs a local community uh, over $130 million in, 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 in income loss. Uh, to to the farm workers, which are from those communities like Huron and the neighboring towns, right? Uh, for each thousand acres that are solely for for solar and and land that's prime or even subprime, you know. And I think uh, there there needs to be some uh, policy solutions. I, I I wrote an editorial of a couple of months back, getting ready to write another one, particularly on this item. But uh, the the amount of uh, of uh, money that is made. Uh, uh, from from a twenty years of a solar a thousand acres worth of solar farm, it's over eight hundred million. So one thirty uh, million, eight hundred million. So there's got to be some community community benefits in there because if we're talking about destroying the opportunity to work on the farm, then what are we talking about in terms of replacing that, right? And for the next generation, uh, education equity is still an issue. It's still a matter of concern. Higher education access is still not as accessible as it should be. You know, I know uh, when the first, uh, uh, what is it, uh, um, uh, with uh, uh, Governor Pat Brown, right? Uh, uh, he opened up uh, more UCs and made it, it was, it was like almost free. You know, we need to bring that back. You know, and during that time when Pat Brown was governor, California was not the fifth strongest economy in the, in the world, right? Today we are. So why can't we do it now? 
right? So these things I think about and uh, being a mayor and just, you know, observing all of what is going on and not just within the, 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 on the ground, but just thinking about, you know, just what's happening at the state, at the, you know, national and, and, and the, the global level. And I have a lot of questions, you know, if, if things were possible at a point uh, when we weren't in the position we're in, why aren't they possible now? Why, why do we have to pay for higher education? You know, it should just go all the way up. And if it did, I can tell you right now, there'll be a lot more medical doctors in the field. We wouldn't be as worried as we are today because of the lack of capacity of, uh, of, of medical physicians to provide the necessary service to the people during this pandemic, right? So, I mean, it, it, it's just a, a social equity thing that, that hurts the most vulnerable the worst. Farmer, and we've been the hardest talking, working people on the planet. And we've been talking about, um, you know, making farm work healthier. And at the root of that is, you know, health care. There's li such limited health care, and um, particularly for people who are undocumented. So, so, Tanya, what can be done about that? And you have about two minutes to answer that very broad question. Yeah, yeah. so what's been really great... Um, with the ACA expansion and the um, is the Medi-Cal expansion that has happened. And as a result of that, um, community clinics have been able to expand and they've been able to expand into these rural areas where these farm workers are. And so it's very important to see that there's these national policies that affect whether or not there's a new clinic down the street from where I live in Sanger, right? Um, those big policies are actually positively impacting um, right now access to care in those rural areas. Now, does that mean that that goes on forever? No, that goes on until and as much as the policy is in place and the investments are being made towards these communities through policies like the Medi-Cal expansion in, in the ACA, and so uh, it, which is the Affordable Care Act, right? Um, <clears throat> And so um, that can be a positive, but we have many, many strides to go um, through those clinics, right? We've are, we're already seeing the expansion of residency programs, medical school programs, being able to actually take their medical doctors or medical trainees into these rural areas like Fireball and having them spend a day there with a physician. And that has a very big impact and helps people want to stay and work here, but we need those investments to continue. Well, that's a good segue to our first question. Um, and here it is. How are farm workers being educated on best practices to remain safe in homes, public places and work, and what to, what to do if they become infected? Uh, Ray, do you want to try this one? Well, that's, that's a good question, you know, and I, that's a question that I share because I've been, uh, I know, you know, we have a uh, letter season going on uh, 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 right now or the tail end of it. And I know one of the contractors or one of the, the, the managers in the field, I've been trying to give them a call. I haven't been able to get a call back or uh, been, been able to connect because it's, it's that question that I have, right? Uh, uh, the, 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 the limited, uh, uh, the, what I could do, is, what I've been doing is just talking to farm workers when they're passing through in front of my office here in Huron. Uh, there's a lot of foot traffic right here. 
and uh, been passing out flyers, putting them on uh, windshields, like if you know I'm promoting a party, and, you know, uh, uh, bilingual flyers on COVID-19, you know, washing hands for 20 seconds, and and so on and so forth. I recorded a little message uh, in English and Spanish where I talk about that as well. I was able to cruise around town with a bullhorn, the one I use for uh, marches and stuff, you know, that big old. <laughs> but, uh, and and sharing that and, uh, and and trying to make it culturally relevant. You know, I don't talk about singing happy birthday twice. I talk about seeing the first verse of De Colores, right? When we com communicate with our folks, let's try to do it in a way that they understand, you know? Happy birthday, I don't know. I'm not sure everybody, you know, could. You know, and in Huron, we have a lot of families. We have 12 languages that are spoken in Huron. Uh, eight of which are Mesoamerican native languages. So we're talking about linguistic, you know, isolation. I mean, you know, and a lot of the families that do speak Spanish, it's their second language, you know. Uh, we got a large uh, uh, population of uh, Mayans from Guatemala, uh, a lot of uh, refugees uh, that uh, I, I prefer to call uh, economic refugees, right, because of the impacts uh, globally, but uh, that, that speak their native uh, Mayan language of Cancobal, you know, and... Uh, and so it's, 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 uh, you're on a, probably the brownest city in the country, but it's extremely diverse. Uh, but I mean, you know, I, I wish uh, there was a, a better way to be able to engage with uh, all these uh, farmers and uh, uh, rancheros and contractors and, and see what's going on because, uh, and I think that's, I'm, I'm going to continue to try to connect with folks because they, I don't know, I see, I see the campesinos, the farm workers walking without masks and, and uh, and I I think uh, it'd be good that they they have masks. They, they probably have a, a handkerchief in their pocket that then later on they, you know. But I don't know. I haven't gone to the actual field and uh, yeah. So if I could just jump in from um, uh, to offer another perspective, um, I think this is a question of a lot of it is a question of scale. Um, so on our small family farm, um, right now we have one employee and so he has five acres to himself. Um, and we are, we have had lots of very serious conversations about, um, what we can do to support him and his family, um, to make sure that they're taking as much precautions as they can. Um, so, so I think one is a question of, of scale, um, the, the larger operations employ many, many more people. Um, and, and I know we were talking about transportation earlier. I think the, the ride to the farm is possibly uh, the most, one of the most, um, you know, dangerous moments um, for people being exposed. Um, so, you know, these again are, are, are very complicated, large questions about how we build infrastructure to support life, to support people working and people eating as well. Um, so I do know, and I've had a lot of conversations in um, organic farmer um, and small farmer circles that we're taking this very, very seriously um, and, and the health of our workers and, and ourselves, we work together um, is, is really top of mind. If I can go ahead really quick, just to say that this is why the investment in community health workers and promotoras are so important because of times like these, that those are the people that are gonna get the information out and quick to people. There are many organizations right now translating information and um, we ourselves are organizing a, a Fresno County-wide call this Friday for people, but it really takes those folks on the ground to be able to pass forward the information quickly. All right, here's a, another question. Um, can everyday advocates do something significant 
to help create the systemic change we need. Um, as consumers, should we just buy organic or should we try to get laws changed at a higher level? And I think any one of you could take this or all of you. So Nikiko, since you are a farmer, why don't, why don't you start? Sure, absolutely. There are decisions we make every day that impact the kind of world we want. So absolutely the choices you make, what kind of farms you're buying from. If you're buying from local farms, from small farms, from um, farms so that you know um, are treating workers well, um, definitely, I mean, I, we are an organic farm and that's a really important value to us. Um, and I think we have to look at the ecological benefits of um, more sustainable practices, not only for the soil health, the water health, and the health of the plants, but for workers. Um, so absolutely, and at the same time, we we cannot change these systems that we're all talking about only through consumer practices. We have to change political systems. We have to change ways that we relate to each other. Um, and that's going to be the long haul. Um, and so I would just offer... Um, you know, when I came home to farm, my dad planted an orchard of nectarines with me. We were standing in the field. I was 19 years old. And he looked up at me and said, Nikiko, when this orchard is full grown, you'll be 40. And at 19, 40 had never entered my mind. <laughs> but that's the time scale we're talking about for this type of transformation. We need to have the heart that Ray just so embodies. We need to have the smarts of Tanya and Chia, and we need to take the long haul look. Beautiful. Chia, why don't you chime in? Yeah, um, I, I think that supporting our communities, uh, small farmer community during this uh, time is very crucial. And really, I think one of the main things that I think all of us are alluded to is really, um, it's not only that supporting them, but you know, recognize that uh, they are an asset in our communities and that uh, their contributions, it's what keep our community going. Uh, so really acknowledge their, who they are and, and, and their work, the, the, how long it took for them to really produce uh, a, uh, just one specific crop or, or the different crops that we that all of us can easily access, right? And so really see them as individual who have skill set who and, and not the bottom line worker, uh, which uh, so really took pride in in the skill that they have. Um, I, I think that you know if we could just acknowledge them as individual who are uh, an asset in our communities and and just help promoting uh and supporting our local uh, farmer community, I think that will be uh, one of the first steps. In addition to making sure that laws and policies are making, as these policies are are take place, look, um, think of the local community that these policy will impact. Um, because most of the time when policy took place, these farmers are at the farm. Uh, picking or harvesting, right? And so they're not at the table to make the decision. And so when policies are passed that will directly impact them, they're not, they're, they're absent at the table. And so really thinking of the process of why or policies are, are not really looking into our, our, from the community perspective. I think really uh, all of these are, are steps that all of us can really, or those of us who have, who can be at the table should really look, think about the community that these policies will directly impact. Great. 
Um, it looks like we have time for one more question. And this one's very relevant to the crisis going on right now. How do farm workers housing and transportation situations affect their safety during COVID-19? Um, Tanya or Ray, would you like to try? I can, I can tell you that um, so much of our research already tells us beyond COVID, just any health issue, unstable housing will be connected to preterm birth outcomes for babies, right? Um, diabetes management, um, propensity for respiratory diseases. So definitely unstable housing affects health on any given day. So when we see this and we see that um, people may be facing, for example, eviction from, from their places of where they live, um, that is gonna have an enormous impact, not only for that person's health, but also for the neighborhood, because we have to think about farm workers as part of communities. And so what we know is that when this is over, we are going to need to recover economically. And one of the major things that will prevent us from doing that is to have disrupted neighborhoods. And so policies right now, they keep people in their homes and, um, and able to continue to have stable housing through this will not only help people's health and health outcomes and be able to self-isolate if needed or isolate a loved one or care for a loved one in their home, but after this, it will help keep communities moving forward economically and recover. And Ray, since you, you have a lot of experience um, with residents in your town who are farm workers, Talk a little bit more about this idea of, you know, how do how do farm workers shelter in place if they're sick? Yeah, it's it's, it's difficult, and and uh, especially if they're living in a, a, a migrant farm worker camp, which uh, historically they're not necessarily a dignified housing option, and everybody it's it's really really tight, um, you know, and and. The buses are still operating, and and I think that's why a lot of times also folks uh, to not be at the at, at where they're residing, they're outdoors somewhere, uh, uh, maybe at the park plaza or, or or whatever, and which is posing a concern with residents saying, why aren't these people at home? Well, you know they don't have the same home you have, you know, uh, and and that's and, and you know even people that have grown up around it their whole lives, you know miss it and uh, which is you know unfortunate but um but yeah even even before this i mean well the, the cost of transportation to get to the farm is, is high and it's 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 a really challenging time right now and and i i'm hoping that, that we could really learn the lessons uh and and take it as a growing moment and hopefully the impact isn't so you know disastrous as it, it could be but, uh, but there's a lot of work that got to get done. You know, I keep mentioning our elders that are stolen from us and, and taken to the fields until their body's completely broken. Uh, what I keep on forgetting to mention is, uh, and the comment that I shared with former uh, uh, Senator Kevin DeLeon was that, uh, you know, we need to figure out to create a, like a 401F, you know, like a 401K, 501K, B, whatever it is, you know, retirement plan. And I told him, but it's got to be a 401F, F for farm worker, you know, 
so that folks can retire and be comfortable and yeah, get their social security and that's, you know, supplemental, but be comfortable and they could volunteer with the LEAP Institute. They could volunteer, you know, uh, to organize, be part of that uh, local farm, uh, farmer's market uh, uh, committee to make that happen or the local uh, community garden to make that happen. And all of that is also, you know, bringing in the next generation to learning how to develop a sustainable and a resi resilient community. You know, because if we lose that in our culture, which happens when we come, you know, uh, after generations being here, you know, we lose that whole communalistic perspective of being together and, and working with and collaborating. And, and that's that that there is like the poison pill, you know, so we need our elders to come back home. We need something that like a retirement plan from uh, health insurance, sick leave, uh, you know, um, uh, and, and our folks, I mean, these essential farm workers, all right, if they're really serious and now are calling our people uh, essential uh, farm workers, essential workers, well, let's see how serious they are and, and, and let's, let's give the folks some citizenship so that they can be able to embrace the same rights as a lot of other folks. You know, even after that happens, though, you know, and it, ever since uh, the, the New Deal, uh, even farm workers were still left out in the cold, you know, so there's there'll still be some uh, political and economic remedies that will need a, you know, uh, be taken into account, you know, even after that fact, which that's a huge one and it's a difficult one. And we've seen uh, the, the the struggle to try to get something dignified. And uh, because it hasn't been, it hasn't happened over the last couple, few decades. And it looks like we have one more question that just came in and it's, it's too important not to try to answer because um, it's so relevant to everyone right now. A huge issue in mental health include is, is anxiety, depression, PTSD, um, and COVID-19 increases anxiety levels to the max. Could you discuss this issue and if you have any initiatives to help? Tanya, I wanna to try to take that one? Yeah, um, I, I think that um, one of the things that we, um, that this is really, bringing about is um, shining light on all the things that we have disinvested in that we now see are essential structures. And one of them is our mental health system. And so, <clears throat> so yes, there are like at the local level, for example, at our county, um, there are efforts to bring that mental health services in Spanish. And I know because um, I belong to a group that has um, of, of women that has actually check, checked on that and they are available in Spanish, but um, but that also takes time and we need new and innovative ways to reach people um, who are working out in the fields most of the day and, or in the packing houses and, and need to reach folks after hours as well. So, <clears throat> so there are resources that I know of and yet um, they're, you know, they're running on shoestring budgets. And so how, how much they can take that remains to be seen, right? Um, and, and yet, what we what we do see is the increase in um, in domestic violence. And um, one of my colleagues at um, Hanoi Islas has been bringing uh, issue to that um, the rise of domestic violence calls, and that is a mental health issue as well as a as a physical safety issue um, <clears throat> that we need to think about in in the context of um, Latino immigrants, farm workers, um, folks that are already vulnerable. Well, it's a huge web of, 
of issues. And unfortunately, we don't have any more time to take questions tonight. Um, but I hope this inspires all of you listening to keep thinking about what we can do to make farm work healthier. Uh, a big thanks 